0: with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for the burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats, and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And the Lord shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take some of the blood on the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of israel and because of their transgressions all their sins and he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. All right. Got the picture? We're going to head to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. That's on page 1208. The Pew Bibles. 1208. in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that had budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes ...but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of goats and calves with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the word. But as it is of the world, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him.
1: Well thanks Jenny and uh, good morning everyone, it's uh, great to be here with you, so it's been a while uh, and so really uh, pleased to be back and to see everybody uh, and apologize in advance that I need to race off again early but hopefully we'll stick around for a while uh, in the coming days it is uh, a great passage of scripture isn't it I just want to apologize up front that there's so much in in chapter 9 that I'm not going to be able to cover the whole lot of it uh, adequately and so I apologize for those things that you're hoping I'm going to say this morning and I'm not if you if you do want to know particular things please do you know ask Andy or um, put it in a and a, a a you know a comment or whatever, and I can get back to you about it. Let's pray. Ask God to help us, Father. We do thank you for your Word, that it is a light to our paths and a lamp to our feet, Father. That we know you through your Word, and so help us to come to know you better this morning as we reflect on all that you say to us in your Word in Hebrews. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, a bit of uh, you know congregation petition participation this morning. Uh, Can you tell me what will happen if you take a fresh slab of meat or a cup of milk and leave it outside in the sun or day? What's going to happen? Who's going to drink it? Really, Olivia, there you go. Um, All right, well, yeah, that's the thing. The thing about meat and milk is that they actually don't have it within themselves to stay fresh, do they? Uh, Outward things can kind of influence or speed up the process, like the sun beating down on a piece of meat all day. But in the end, the very nature of meat and milk is corrupt. It can't stay fresh on its own. And if you like, human beings are like a slab of meat or a glass of milk. I don't know if you've been described in that way in the past, but there you go. I don't mean that we'll kind of start to smell in a few days and decay if we're left unattended, although I've seen it happen to a few teenagers before. but what I mean is that we, we actually don't have it within ourselves to stay morally fresh. Our human nature doesn't have it within us in itself to prevent moral corruption. Outward things can of course speed up the process like our upbringing or uh, whom we choose to hang out with. But in the end we can't stay morally fresh on our own. Every human being is by nature prone to moral failure. Now, let me just uh, test the theory for a moment. I'm going to, again, ask your help here. Can you just put your hand in the air if you've never murdered anyone? kind of hoping everyone has their hand up right now. And if the person beside you doesn't, then I would run very quickly. I'm just saying. Alright, so maybe the theory is wrong. Everyone here seems pretty good. Keep your hands up if you've never stolen a car. Right, that, excellent. That's, that's excellent. If you've never got a speeding ticket, or a, a, leave your hand up. Oh, a few, a, still a few morally uncorrupted people within the midst here. Okay, okay, keep your hands up if you've never cheated, never lied, never spoken nastily about someone behind their back. I better put my uh, hand down. Okay, very good. I guess you guys are just a bad bunch. Uh, clearly morally imperfect. But the reality is, isn't it, that, that no one actually has it within themselves, himself or herself, to stay morally fresh. Uh, And the fact is, we know it. We've experienced the guilt of our own wrongdoing from time to time. We have a conscience that warns us when we're doing wrong. It helps us to do the right thing, and yet we often ignore it, and the result is that we experience guilt. Now, some people live with incredibly deep and debilitating guilt and shame they cringe with fear at the possibility of someone finding out what they've done you know perhaps i'm even talking about someone here this morning and the likelihood is that i am our sin actually creates a problem for us because the bible actually tells us that god is completely holy and righteous we've already seen it several times this morning haven't we And chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews are actually based on that fact. His very nature can't even tolerate moral imperfection or sin of any kind. Now that's not a problem in and of itself, but the problem comes because we're told that God is also our judge. Now if that's true, then that's the problem. What do you think would happen if you kind of ate that slab of meat or drank that glass of milk after it had been left out in the sun for a whole week? Absolutely. Your body would expel it. It would get rid of it. It would vomit it out. Your body couldn't actually tolerate its corrupt nature, even if you wanted to. The Bible tells us that we actually rely on this perfectly holy, undefiled God for our very existence. And it also says that we can only exist in his presence if we're equally undefiled. Otherwise, we too will be expelled. See, the problem is that our natures are corrupt. We know we sin. Our consciences bear witness that we're guilty. And so if we're actually to be accepted by God and to avoid his judgment, then our guilt must be dealt with. Now, can I say that if sin doesn't matter to you, then this chapter will be very boring. Because this is a chapter that reminds us that our sin is very serious. But that God loves us so much. And he has made a way to cleanse us from our sin. It's good news, isn't it? You know, what are some of the ways in which people, do you think, try and deal with their guilt for things they've done wrong? I actually asked the staff that question earlier this week. Uh, here's, here's five ways that I've heard of and that the staff came up with. Uh, People try to forget it. They just just kind of block it out and try to move on. Or or maybe they just kind of downplay it. It wasn't really that bad. Or perhaps they they want to justify it in some way. Or, Or fourthly, maybe they just want to blame someone else. That is, if they hadn't have done this, well, then I wouldn't have acted in that way. Or perhaps from time to time there are people who actually... Deal with their guilt by confession, confessing that they've actually done the wrong thing. And, and actually of those five ways, confession is clearly the best of those ways. Because you've actually done something to deal with the problem appropriately. You've admitted something that is true, even if you may still need to do something to make up for what you've done. But in the end, how can our guilt before a holy God be dealt with? Well, that is ultimately what Hebrews 9 and 10 is trying to help us understand. Both the old and the temporary way that God had set up to enable people's guilt to be dealt with, but also the new and effective way by which we can now have guilt-free consciences. Uh, Let's just pick it up, if you've got your Bibles open, in Hebrews chapter 9. Let me just start from the beginning in chapter 9, verse 1. He says there, "...now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness." Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, in the uh, Old Testament, the way in which Israel related to God revolved around an earthly tabernacle, or a temple. Uh, the tabernacle was and you can see it there on the screen, was the tent that the uh, Israelites carried around with them and set up in each place that they settled. Uh, It was later superseded by the temple that was built in Jerusalem, but both the ritual and the layout were essentially the same. You can just see it there on the screen. Uh, The key area of the tabernacle was another tent that was sitting inside the outer walls. Um, It was divided into two sections by a thick curtain. The first first section was called the Holy Place. The second is called the Most Holy Place. And it's the area that we have just been described there in verses 1 to 5. Now, notice that they get their name from the character of God. That is, God is holy and the place is called holy because this is where God chose to be present with his people. Now, the author also refers to the articles that are kept in this holy place and and they're very significant. Uh, None more significant than the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Here's a a bit of a depiction of it there for you to see. It it was a a portable chest uh, made out of wood, overlaid with gold. Three things, we're told, are kept inside. So a gold jar containing manna, which was the food that God provided for the Israelites when they wandered through the desert for 40 years. There was Aaron's staff that had budded as a, a reminder of how God had chosen his family and his tribe to become the priests of Israel. And then finally, the stone tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the solemn written agreement between God and his people made at Mount Sinai. And then also significant were the the cherubim of glory. They were uh, two winged figures like angels set on top of the chest as a sign that God's glory or his presence was here. And then finally, there was the mercy seat or the atonement cover. Uh, It was a slab of gold that fitted exactly over the top of the ark. And it was a reminder that the covenant included a way of forgiveness through sacrifice. What does atonement mean? Well, it's the means by which God and people are reconciled to one another or made at one. Someone has coined the phrase at-one-ment from atonement. It's the the turning away of anger. And in this case, it's the righteous anger of God at us for our sin against him. The Bible doesn't shy away from the fact that God is angry with humanity because of our sin, but he's also a God of mercy. And, And this most holy place was the place of access to God, the place that was set up by God's initiative. He's the one who actually provides the way to be forgiven. But could only come about by sacrifice. Uh, let me just take a moment to show you the seriousness of the problem and why, we, why the need for sacrifice as well. So we read from Leviticus 16 before. Uh, let me just pick up the very first few verses there of Leviticus 16, which talks about the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. So the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses... Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. And so Leviticus 16 begins with a warning stay away. You couldn't just walk into the holy place and approach God. Not even Aaron, the high priest, could walk in or he would die. His two sons had died trying. And you you read it earlier in, in chapter 10 of Leviticus. Our sin cannot enter the presence of God's holiness. Sin separates people from God and needs to be dealt with. And so even the high priest, when he was to enter the most holy place on behalf of the people, had to have his own sin dealt with. And so a bull would be taken. And the high priest would press his hand down on the head of the animal to signify a transferal of guilt, a transferal of his sin and the people's sin to the animal. And And then he would slit the throat of the bull, collect its blood to sprinkle on the altar, and burn it as a sacrifice a sin offering for himself and for his people have a look at what hebrews has to say about it in verses 6 and 7 there of chapter 9 these preparations having thus been made that is the setting up of the tabernacle the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties but into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. See, this sacrificial system was an act of God's mercy that enabled sinful humanity to find forgiveness. God wants to forgive the sinner. That's why he had a Day of Atonement. It's also why he sent the Lord Jesus, as we'll see. And so the whole system is is set up by God's initiative, I mean, he's the one who provides the way. It's not set up by humans. But it was also a reminder to the people of their inadequacies and their inability to really get close to God. And, and we can see it in that only the priests were actually able to enter the holy place. And then only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And he could only do that on, on one day a year, on the Day of Atonement, after an elaborate ritual of sacrifices to cleanse himself and the people. And then after all of that, only one sinful man could be in the presence of a holy, sinless God. And so for the people themselves, there was actually no direct access to God. Their only access was through the priests or through the high priest who sacrificed an animal for a a sin offering shedding its blood to make atonement and cleanse the people from their sins. You see, the, the day of atonement actually tells us of the, the power of blood. I mean, the animal dies because the wages of sin is death. It's actually what we call a substitutionary atonement. You may have heard that, those words before. Uh, the animal doesn't deserve to die. You do. The animal is your substitute. The blood is spilt because... When we drain your blood, you're dead. But in the end, it was only ever intended to be a shadow or a visual aid, if you like, of what was really needed. Have a look at the outcome there from the second part of verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. the old covenant system of dealing with our sin and getting right with God was ultimately inadequate. Because it actually couldn't clear the consciences of the people. Something else was needed. A new and better way was needed. And so have a look at a couple of verses with me. So verse 11 firstly. So verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. And then skip your eyes down to verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. See, if if the high priest entered into the most holy place, then our author wants us to know that Jesus himself entered into the most holy place. That is, Christ came as our high priest. And instead of entering into an earthly, man made tabernacle, he entered into the real, the ultimate tabernacle. He entered into the heavenly sanctuary of God himself. Christ has entered heaven, entered heaven itself and he didn't stand in front of a gold-plated chest. He came before God, representing us, having died as the sacrifice necessary to pay for our sin. He was, in fact, the ultimate sacrifice. See, verse 14 says that Jesus offered himself without blemish to God. You know, It wasn't animals that Jesus' sacrifice, it was his own sinless self. His sacrifice is also different in another significant way. Have a look there at verses 25 and 26. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You know, there are are so many wonderful joys in having a new baby, aren't there? But can I say one of the unpleasant features of having a new baby is the endless cycle of washing. Uh, Babies can dirty things quicker than you can clean them. Uh, Vomit here, dribble there, other bodily fluids anywhere you care to imagine. And so you wash every day and it's just never finished, is it? Nicola? Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. And you never feel as if you ever get anywhere. Your job is, is never done. There's no job satisfaction. It doesn't matter how much work you do. You, it's never any closer to completion, is it? And you see, the, the old earthly system of sacrifice for sins was actually just like that. The sacrifices were never finished. The job was never complete. Day after day, year after year, the sacrifices had to continue being made. Why? Well, chapter 10, verse 4 tells us, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, the endless cycles of sacrifices were actually a constant reminder that people are essentially sinful and they were never able to ultimately do what was needed. They couldn't ultimately deal with sin and cleanse our consciences so that we could approach God. See, the old system uh, may not have worked fully, but it did have a job to do. That is, it points forward to the death of Jesus. God actually was giving us a a visual aid of what was ultimately required. A sacrifice that would achieve real and lasting forgiveness and cleanse the conscience. So Jesus is the one who gave his own blood to be shed for us. And he did it once and for all, verse 26 says. His sacrifice worked... To take away the sins of many. And in verses 12 and 14, he did what no number of sacrificial animals by mere men could ever achieve. That is, see what he says? He secured an eternal redemption for us and purified our consciences. See, the best worship that uh, human beings could offer God could not do the job it was supposed to do. Human beings remained stained with sin. Animal sacrifice only worked until the next sin. And so Jesus' perfect sacrifice secured an eternal redemption, a once-for-all redemption. He took away our guilt. He cleansed our consciences once and for all. And you see, here's what the author of Hebrews actually wants his readers to understand. You know, they're actually facing persecution for their Christian faith. And he's been urging them to hold fast to Jesus because nothing is worth letting go of Jesus. And if they're Jewish people who have become Christians, as as seems to be the case, then they may have been tempted to go back to Judaism, which was a protected religion. But the old covenant, with all of its rituals, could never cleanse the conscience, could never redeem us from our sin, could never secure our eternal redemption, could never ensure we would receive God's promised eternal inheritance under the new covenant. And yet all of these things are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Our sins remembered no more. Our consciences purified. Our future secure. See, how did Jesus do this? He did it on the cross. See verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death, the death of Jesus has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see, it actually doesn't get any better than this, especially when you understand your destiny. Now, I remember a camp I was on once. Uh, we had a competition. Uh, we needed to, there was a line, and we needed to jump from a standing still and just see how far we could jump. It was a little competition we were running. One guy thought that he had come up with a way to beat everyone else, and so he put a chair uh, on the line, and he launched himself off the chair, hoping that the height would get him further along. But as he jumped, the chair flung out from behind him, and he landed straight on his face. And very shortly after in hospital, because of the damage that he'd done. If that guy had understood what was destined to happen to him, he wouldn't have done what he did. But God has made clear what the destiny of every man, woman, and child is in chapter 9, verse 27. See it there? And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. See, here is the destiny of every single person. To die, and then to stand before the holy God of the universe to face judgment. Now, the dilemma, of course, is our sin. Our guilty consciences our morally defiled human nature like that slab of meat. And we can't survive that judgment on our own. But Jesus has provided a way to face our destiny unscathed. Look at what verse 28 says. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. See, what a powerful gift God offers us. God offers Christ, the ultimate sacrifice to bear our sins, yours and mine, once and for all. And instead of coming to judge or as our judge, He comes to save us. He secures our eternal redemption. See, that's what redemption means it means cleansing from defilement so we can enter God's presence and live. So, how's your conscience? Do you know the joy of a cleansed conscience? Or are you perhaps racked with guilt that you haven't accepted God's conscience cleansing forgiveness for? You know, as I was reflecting on this passage, I thought, you know, the danger today really is that I haven't actually told you anything you don't already know. You're sinful? You've heard it. Jesus died for you? You know that. So why do some of us still live with sin and guilt? The old way enforced the guilt trip. Sacrifice was a reminder of sin. The whole system under the old covenant really acted as a visual age. It pointed forward to a future time, to a time of the new order, the new covenant, because the old way was ineffective. It couldn't really do the job of making people clean before God. It didn't clear the conscience of anyone. But now in Jesus, the real thing has arrived. The sacrifice of Jesus means that God remembers our sin no more. Leave your sin, leave your guilt at the foot of the cross because that is where Jesus dealt with it, on the cross for us. Forgiveness doesn't mean a mere improvement in human nature. That's what, not what it is to be a Christian. It means redemption. It means being rescued out of our old nature of defilement. It means rebirth. You know, it's not often we get to enjoy the very best of anything, is it? I mean, we may not be able to afford the best holiday package. We don't have the best job. We're not in the best class. We, we're, our friendships aren't always the best they could be necessarily. And yet as Christians, in the things that matter most, we have nothing but the best. Jesus Christ, the best priest, offered the best sacrifice in the best temple so that we can enjoy the best possible relationship with god and the best future imaginable isn't that good news that's great news let's pray together our heavenly father we are so thankful for all that you have done for us and we ask your forgiveness for the times that we forget or we just take for granted all that you have done for us in sending your own son the lord jesus who died in our place who paid the penalty for our sin as a sacrifice of himself on our behalf. So, Father, thank you that we, have, we can live with our, with our consciences cleansed, with an assurance of joy when the Lord Jesus returns. So, please, fill our hearts with joy as we reflect on the, the sin-bearing Saviour who belongs to us, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.